exciting guest for you guys. Joining us today is Dr. Daniel Pompa. He's someone who I would consider an expert in functional medicine. He has an extremely interesting story about how this all started for him. So Dr. Daniel Pompa, why don't we start off the show by you telling us your history? It's, it's, it will come best coming straight from the horse's mouth. <laughs> yeah, I've been called worse. Um, but you know, the, uh, the story is a pain to purpose story. You know, I, I always say I didn't choose, uh, this is what I teach now, and I'm blessed uh, to teach hundreds of doctors around the world my protocols, but it all came out of my own story. It did. You know, I, it was around 1999, 2000, and um, I, was, I had a huge functioning practice, and uh, life was really good. Two young boys at the time. I was actually probably in the best shape of my life. I was racing bikes at that time at the expert level. All good. And then <laughs> uh, it started with simple fatigue, probably like most people listening and watching this. Uh, and then it went to anxiety and then it went to insomnia, panic attacks, sound sensitive. I became allergic to everything I was eating. I mean, literally life as I know it uh, came to a screeching halt. So um, it wasn't a good time. I mean, at that time, um, two young uh, boys and uh, I couldn't even handle them crying. I, I tell my wife to take them out. I couldn't handle it. My adrenals were shot. My thyroid was going, although my blood work was normal. You know, I searched around for four years. When I had insomnia, I would dig at studies. I was good at reading them, but I just couldn't figure it out. One day I found Mad Hatter's disease. And I don't know if you recall what that is, but people making felt hats were using mercury as part of the process and they became mercury poison. I had every symptom. So of course I got my mercury tested, but I did a blood test, came out negative. It was a little over a year later, I was working with an endocrinologist because my thyroid and adrenals were shot. And he said to me one day, you know, Dan, I, I think you have mercury toxicity. I said, I, I thought so too. And I did a blood test and came out normal. He said, oh, that's the wrong test. That'd be if you had acute mercury poisoning, like people making felt hats or getting poisoned every day. If you do have it, I think it's chronic. So I did a different test where you chelate it out of your tissues and then you're able to measure it in the urine. And it came out where I had lead, mercury, uh, and it showed positive. So my next question was, where do you think I got it? He said, do you have any dental work done around when this all happened? And I said, maybe, you know, because these fillings cracked. So I called uh, my dentist, who's one of my good friends, and sure enough, shortly after that, the fatigue started. I just never put it together. Those fillings, those silver fillings contain 50% mercury, as I found out later. Um, but, you know, years, it was just bioaccumulating. That mercury vapor comes off, and it was bioaccumulating in my brain. And then, you know, I had other sources along the way. Contact lens fluid, the saline solution in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s had mercury in it as well, thimerosal. And that was a factor, uh, you know. I was a big fish eater at one time, so that was a factor. The bottom line is my bucket overflowed and all the symptoms started. And that led me on my journey. How do I get this out of my body and brain safely? And everything I teach today literally came out of that story. Let me uh, go back to the dental thing because, um, you know, dental work is one of the things that in modern society we all do. And we all have fillings. You know, you go to the dentist, 
he's going to be like, yeah, you have a cavity, you need a filling. So is it safe to assume that all of us have fillings that have mercury based on what you're saying? Is that something we, how do we know if we do and how do we know if our dentist is putting mercury in our mouth? Yeah, that's a great question. If, if the filling's dark, whether it's silver, black, uh, dark color, then uh, it's probably an amalgam filling, uh, which has 50% mercury. If it's white, then it's not. So composite fillings are really what the industry is moving towards um, and they don't have mercury or it's a porcelain filling, which is probably the best of all fillings, which they don't have mercury. So many safe options today, but unfortunately, when we were growing up, that's all they used is silver fillings. And I got to run to the mirror right now and check my mouth. I don't know if you guys could see uh, you. If you uh, could check. Uh, yeah. We got to check to see if I have any dark, but that's, that's funny because uh, my dog, my dentist actually does the, the white porcelain. And yeah. uh, so I've had those my whole life. So that's actually, that's good. good. You know, the dental thing is a big deal. You know, there's a, there's a movie out right now that actually was pulled off of Netflix but you can go and watch this movie if you go to rootcausemovie.com. I get nothing for sending you on anywhere there. It's an amazing documentary, rootcausemovie.com. And it talks a little bit about this, but it also talks about hidden infections in the mouth. And look, I, I still have clients from all over the world. I still keep my hand in helping very sick and challenged people, uh, which I love to do. I mean, if I'm teaching, I have to still be in it to some degree. So um, many, of these unexplainable illnesses and people that just aren't getting well, can't get well, been everywhere, done everything. Uh, it's hidden infections or amalgam illness, uh, heavy metal toxicity, but hidden infections. And what I mean by that is root canals. They're all, they all carry anaerobic bacteria and other infections in and around these root canals. And also where you've had wisdom teeth or teeth extracted, it'll heal over, but there's an infection 88% of the time in a wisdom, or where a wisdom tooth was extracted, uh, there's an infection under there. That's called a cavitation. So the movie, the documentary was actually done um, on this. I interviewed one of the uh, top dentists in the country. Um, he's from New York on this on my podcast. Uh, and we talked about the proper way to identify if you have these and also how to remove them. But I can tell you, a lot of people with unexplainable illnesses, it's coming from the mouth in some fashion hidden sources. Really, really interesting to talk to you, Daniel Pompa. One question I had for you is that, especially this being a health and fitness podcast, most people listening to this podcast have probably eaten a decent amount of tuna in their life. So when you were talking about heavy metal poisoning, the first thought that came to my mind was mercury. That urine test you got done, is that a simple test? Is that if someone, if they went to their family doctor, could they get that test done? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Most family doctors would say, okay, we'll do a blood test because that's what they know, but that's only showing acute poisoning. And unfortunately, uh, their method, even if they did a blood test and saw you had high blood, getting an acute poisoning, meaning you're working in a factory, um, you're getting exposed every day because mercury's only in the blood maybe two days and then it's pushed into deeper tissue. And that's where we have to test for it. So they wouldn't do that test. You'd have to go to a functional medicine doctor. Look, I, I train doctors. Um, all over the country. Their health centers of the future is the name of my seminars and uh, health center of the future doctors now um, are spreading around the country and the world. Um, but they do the proper test where we take an agent that grabs on to these metals. It's called a chelator. And then it pulls it out and then we measure it in the urine. Uh, and a functional medicine doctor would do the proper test. I mean, you're, you're obviously more educated on this than I am, but 
as in terms of supplements or dietary interventions to try to detoxify your bodies of heavy metals, I know of humic and fulvic acids. Would there be anything else you'd recommend? Yeah, um, humic humates and fulvic acids are in a product that I developed called bind. Now that product is meant just to stay in the gut and we'd use other products to help upregulate cell function and move toxins out of the body. We use another product called cytodetox to move toxins from the cell um, out of the body. But many of the toxins end up in the liver and they bind to bile and then bile's dumped in the gut. We want to catch that. Otherwise you auto intoxicate, you reabsorb the toxins connected to bile. The reason is because your body's designed to reabsorb bile back to the liver and it brings the toxins around the round. So we use a product that I call Bind that has humates and fulvic acids in it, um, but we, they don't leave the gut very well and we don't want them to. So, because we want that to sit in the gut as a catcher's mitt. Here's the problem with humates and fulvic acid. It took us a long time to find a clean source, even still. Every batch that comes in from that product, we test they, because they're, they're contaminated with lead, arsenic, and other heavy metals. So be very careful of your sources on those things. And other things uh, like um, Corella, it's a weak binder. People look at Corella as the, oh, it's a metal magnet. Not really. Uh, it's more of a weak binder and can actually redistribute metal. Um, in any binder, whether it's uh, clays, uh, carbons, you have to test those because most of them are in fact contaminated. So there's a big caution there. But look, real detox has to go to the cell. You have to upregulate cell function. And when people are toxic, that's the problem. The cell that's designed to get toxins out of itself all day long, and you have 70 trillion of these things, when that starts to shut down, I don't care what you do down here, you have to get the cell moving toxins from itself. That's how we get sick people well. It's really, really fascinating. And what you said about testing the ingredients is really important, especially, you know, a lot of these imported ingredients from China, things like spirulina, mm -hmm. ashwagandha, a lot sure. of them, if, if you're third party testing them, they're laced with heavy metals and things. Yes. It, it's, it's really, when you're looking at buying, I mean, herbs from China and India, I mean, you know, they have so many contaminants, you know, you really have to be careful with what products you're consuming. And just because it's a, uh, you know, G, uh, GCM certified or these different certifications, that doesn't mean that it's tested for a certain amount of cleanliness. You know, there's, you have to be really know your company, know your products. Listen, uh, you know, we, we test every batch. So a lot of companies say, oh, you know, this we tested once, but a lot of the stuff that comes in, certain batches are clean, certain batches are not. So well, be I'll say, careful. I'll say one more thing, then I'll let Steve uh, jump in. Um, a lot of these ingredient suppliers from China, I do this for a living, right? I, I formulate supplements. They're literally like Coke dealers, right? So you'll say, hey, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, your spirulina. And they'll say, oh, friend, we send you sample, highest quality product. That 100 gram sample they send you, it's going to be the highest quality stuff you've ever got. You're going to third party test it. It's going to be 99% pure. It's going to be perfect. And then you put in a purchase order for, you know, 20 yeah. kilograms and they send you absolute crap. Yeah, it, it, it's so true. And by the way, I'm not against Corella. I'm not against any of those things, but when people are trying to use like Corella or some of these other herbal binders as chelators, that's not a good thing. Corella has other great benefits. You can have a clean one. So does spirulina, but I, they're just weak binders and people take them thinking, Oh, I did some heavy metal detox. Uh, you know, they took Corella for three months and look, it took me years to get the mercury out of the brain. It, it bioaccumulated. Listen, the first place of exposure is in utero. There's a study called the DRASH study. 
it was one of the first studies to show this, but the number of fillings, ladies, in your mouth, according to the study, is proportional to how much on autopsies they find in babies' brains. So there's a correlation, the number of fillings and how much in utero the baby's exposed to. Oh, and then the number of fillings in your mouth is, how, is proportional to how much we find in your brain. And look, in, it, it's years. It turns to inorganic mercury. So the vapor goes across. It turns to inorganic mercury, and there it's locked for life unless you do the right protocol to get it out. So my detox protocol, we start with a preparatory phase where we open up the downstream pathways like your gut, your liver, your kidneys. Then we start regulating the cell function again, get that going. And then we go into a body phase where we just try to get the easy to get toxins. And then the magic happens in the brain phase. And that's where we go after the deep tissue. Lead gets stored in the bone very deeply, takes years to get out and mercury in the brain and nerve tissue. So yeah, I mean, detox done right is my big passion, obviously, because that's how I got my life back. Um, so anyways, but it's more than that. I teach more than that. I teach different things, fasting strategies. I have a multi-therapeutic approach that I teach doctors that I have for years. Uh, fasting, my diet variation, my new book coming out called Beyond Fasting. You know, how we incorporate all of that with my cellular detox is what my passion is. So before we get into all that stuff, um, I just want to summarize really quick because in the United States, a lot of us have like crazy high deductibles. A lot of us you know, you go to a naturopath, a holistic doctor, Eastern doctor, it's not even covered under insurance, so we have to pay out of pocket. Can you kind of like go back and just like kind of say, if we want to get tested for this stuff, what ex who do we exactly need to go to? Because a lot of these holistic doctors that I've been to, they're clueless. They, they just know how to like stick you with some needles and, and they don't know anything about shit, you know? And so yeah. if I were to go to them, you just spend like 150 bucks to see them and then they wouldn't even know. So is there someone specific that we can kind of Google, look up that would be able to knock these tests out for us accurately? You know, if, you, if you go to my website, you know, we have a list of doctors. We can connect you to some of the doctors that I trained. That's the easiest way. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you, you're 100 percent right. Uh, functional medicine doctors, you know what they've turned into today? other natural pill pushers and you know and i listen there's a time and a place even for a medication right but now they're running all these expensive tests oh the new fat is the genetic test and then they give you all this stuff based on your genetics look i've interviewed some of the top scientists on this whole area of SNPs and genetics it gives us clues but i can tell you it has failed as far as you know treating people you know you don't treat genes you treat humans Right. And it's like when we're looking at people now are identifying themselves. I have the, you know, the I'm homozygous MTHFR and they're identifying themselves as these genes. The fact is, is via something called epigenetics, meaning our body can go around these SNPs and weaknesses. It's that smart. So, you know, I, 10 years ago, I, too, was excited about all the gene testing. But I can tell you clinically in working with hundreds of doctors, it, it's it's not the answer. So running expensive tests and just taking a lot of supplements, look, the key is getting upstream to the cause. If you have these hidden infections, if you have mercury in your teeth and that's vaporizing mercury, and it does the life of that filling into your brain, how are you going to get well? You might get well for a short period of time, but then all of a sudden you end up with other issues, other problems. It's not lasting. So you have to get upstream to the causative factors. That's what I teach. That's the key. So I got my life back. I, I didn't get my life back by taking a bunch of supplements and running a bunch of tests, honestly. And there's a time and a place for all of it. 
But the fact is you have to go upstream to cause doctors, even alternative are not doing that today. I, I agree completely with what you said about the genetic testing. Another thing that people forget to think about is that there's a hundred times more genetic information in the bacteria in your body than your own DNA. Only 3% of the proteins in your body are coded for your own DNA. 97% are the bacteria in your body. So even if you find out your own genes, you're kind of figuring out 1% of the equation, right? So it's kind of yeah. it's, it's cool and as sexy and as exciting as it sounds. It's kind of asking the wrong question, in my opinion. No, I agree. I, it is sexy. It is, you know, I, I'm, I, my doctor put me on this special diet based on my genetics. Um, you know, good luck um, with that. But yeah, it's sexy right now. So just, you know, be aware uh, that there's a lot of it's kind of it's kind of like the blood type diet when that first came out right yeah. like yeah. you can like you can kind of like i can understand where the idea could come from and like i don't think it's a stupid idea but when you actually analyze human physiology it doesn't make much sense but the idea and the thought process isn't stupid but it just didn't pan out yeah that's true so, so that's, go ahead trevor What's the next topic you want to talk about, Trevor, before we get into the next one? So the real reason I want to get you on, Dr. Daniel Pomp, is that you're very well educated, but you're also open-minded. And one problem we have is that I feel like a lot of experts reside in one camp, right? They're the keto camp, and that's all they recommend. They're the vegan camp, and that's all they recommend. And especially now with documentaries like What the Health coming out on Netflix, people watch a documentary like that. They get so influenced by it that vegan also be almost becomes like a religion for them right True. so I, I want to i want to get your thoughts on what are your thoughts on all of this like what do you think the best diet approach is do you think vegan diets are healthy do you think ketogenic diets are healthy like if someone came to you and said you know hey i want to look great i want to feel great what diet should i eat what would be some tips you would give them oh man i love this topic right because you're, you're right right everyone lines up in a camp right we have our keto people paleo vegans vegetarians all of it uh there's even the new the carnivore diets getting popular um and these things come in and out of vogue right and people pretty much are in the camp they're in because they went vegan and oh my god i felt so much better and it helped me so therefore they're now vegans uh, or i went paleo i can pick on any of the diets my feeling is they're all great the key, the key is, and this is not even my opinion. There's so much science around this and I discuss it in my book. It's like, look, the key is switching diets. I've been in some you know, ancient cultures and they never are on one diet. They're always forced, whether it's environmental factors, lack of food, you know, who knows, but they're always forced to change diet. Science shows that changing diet actually creates forces your microbiome, that's your gut bacteria that you mentioned earlier, right? And other factors that forces your body to have to adapt. And that adaptation, as it turns out, is the magic to this hormone optimization that occurs. So one thing that we do in my doctor group is we move people out of different diets seasonally. We also do it monthly and we also do it weekly. And I can discuss those different strategies. But the point is this, is you stay on a vegan diet, you stay on that long, your genetics will determine when you get sick. Stay on a paleo diet. And there's all the research on that, the high protein can cause all these different problems that age you prematurely. They're right. But moving in and out of paleo is actually really good. Ketosis, you have all these people that are really excited about ketosis. I love ketosis, 
but I never stay in ketosis. When you look at ancient cultures, they were never in ketosis. The, may, the moment they had uh, you know, healthy carbohydrates, they were eating them, right? The Huns of people, a tribe that I visited in Africa, right? So, I mean, it'd be, and why? Because it, they want to survive. You know, they're going to be attracted to the fruit when they had it or the vegetables, uh, you know, different vegetables when they had it. In the harsh winters, of course, they were going to be eating fats and meats and whatever they had at that time. The point is this. Now we can look and realize that our bodies thrive when we switch diets. So the magic isn't the diet. The magic is actually alternating and switching diets and driving adaptation, which creates a hormone optimization. So that's really the answer to the question. So what do we do when I get someone challenged, uh, you know, I will change their diet around and we listen to the body. I'm not going to give them foods that their body is intolerant to at that time. However, I still, change the diet. I may move them into ketosis, but I'll move them back out of ketosis in a few months, create that dietary shift. So there lies the magic, Trevor. You just broke the hearts of all these diet gurus and guys on social media who say you're supposed to eat chicken, rice, and broccoli 10 times a day, yeah. every day. <laughs> you see, when we look at what Americans eat, right? Okay, the vegan, the paleo, they're eating the same six to eight foods. And there's nothing really more damaging than that, especially for your gut bacteria. We know that when you alter diets, you know, even seasonally, it really creates a diversity in your gut, which as Trevor, as you pointed out, affects all of the cells in your body. It affects how your brain works. It affects your immune system. We need this diversity. Well, we don't gain diversity by taking pills. And I'm not against taking different bacteria pills, but I can tell you this, as a group of doctors, we would all say the same thing. We don't fix these terrible guts by giving you bacteria. We fix them by these, these diverse strategies that we use with diet variation. I, that's what I call my principles, diet variation and feast famine cycles. So we emulate what ancient cultures do. So we put you in times of feast and times of famine. We change the foods that we do that with. We fast you during times, we have feast times. We do that weekly, monthly, and seasonally. So, uh, you know, those strategies are what we do to really get your body to adapt. And through that adaptation, you know, the best for your audience, you know, the best example I can give everyone listening, exercise. All of you listening know this, right? Is if you do the same exercise all the time, you not only plateau, you adapt to that exercise. And when you adapt, you actually start to lose, uh, you know, the function. You actually start to lose results. Oh, and then you change your workout. Now all of a sudden you do the new thing, but everyone thinks, oh, it's this new thing that's so great. No, it's not the new thing. It was the change, right? Okay, now I'm doing TRX. And oh my gosh, my results. It's not the TRX. You're still just moving. It, 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 what it is is the change creates the body now, forces your body to have to adapt to this new force, you know? And we know that. Bodybuilders, you know, have known this for years. This, this change creates the, forces the body to adapt. How does it adapt? It, it upregulates growth hormone. It makes your cells more sensitive to testosterone. This adaptation mechanism to survive creates the result. No different for our diet than it is for exercise. That's really, really good advice, Dr. Daniel. Um, and some of the things bodybuilders have been doing as well is cycling carbohydrates, right? And that almost gives you that feast and famine cycle. And that's something I noticed I, I, I did when I was 18, just because I was trying to quantify nutrition, right? And so I knew, I knew protein was important, obviously. No one's going to debate protein is important. But then I thought, well, carbs are important because, you know, that's your body's 
immediate energy source that fills glycogen. There's also essential fatty acids. So what I would do is that on my workout days, I would eat more carbs and less fats. Then my rest days, I would eat more fats and less carbs. And I got great results doing that. It's the similar idea to, you know, cycling fast and famine. And I think a big problem people get into is that it's so, we're all creatures of habit, right? So people like to eat the same thing every day, like exercise the same way every day. Like I'm in academia. If you go to the university, there's no assigned seatings. But it's creepy that you see the same person will sit in the same chair. They come at the same time with the same coffee. They'll eat an apple at exactly 12 o'clock. It's almost like that person is living Groundhog Day every single day. If you go sit in that person's chair, they they don't flip out, but they look at you like... Yeah, you're in my spot. Yeah, right? It's like, it's the craziest thing. And the same thing with people, right? Like so many people, they wake up at the same time. They go to Starbucks at 8 a.m. They get to work at 8.30. At 10 o'clock, they have a muffin and a coffee for snack break. At 12 o'clock, they go to the same restaurant for lunch. Like, yeah, it's, it's insane. You know, it, it's, it, you're right. It's, 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 it is funny, right? We have to force change or be forced. Today, unfortunately, we, we aren't forced to change our diet, right? We have the luxury of going to the grocery store and getting the same eight foods, right? Uh, you know, when you, you live out in uh, the, the environment, it's a lot different. You're going to be forced to change your diet. Trust me. So, you know, when you look at this, I, I fell victim to this, right? I mean, this is some years ago now, you know, probably 10 years ago. And, you know, I, the more I research ketosis and, you know, I just, I fell in love with the whole concept of how ketones heal the brain and they do. And they're so amazing for your microbiome. They can turn off bad genes. So of course I went all in, in ketosis. All of a sudden I go, what the heck is going on? I'm getting belly fat. You know, my lower abs are gone. Right. Okay. And, and I'm getting some like love handles again. And, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to drop my carbs more because see that worked the first time I got even leaner when I went into ketosis. Right. And so I dropped my carbs down to 20 grams. Gosh, it, it, I think it's getting worse. 10 grams. I just got to be more disciplined and yet I'm getting skinny fat. Now I notice I'm getting weaker in the gym. Right. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, wait a minute. You know, th- there's something going on. And I, I happened upon someone, you know, this article that low carb diets long-term can cause insulin resistance. And I was like, that's impossible. So I started digging more. Well, what I found was it causes insulin resistance, but it's not an insulin resistance like a diabetic. It's an insulin resistance that our cells literally cause to survive. Meaning from the DNA of your cell, it'll literally blunt your insulin receptor. Why is it doing this? And it creates an insulin resistance, right? Meaning that insulin will help you store fat, right? It's a survival mechanism. Why is the body doing this? Well, it's obvious. All the body wants to do is survive and adapt. So what it's doing is when you restrict, your cells can only use two things for energy, sugar or fat. What you're doing in a low carb diet, paleo ketosis, you're forcing the cell to use fat. And then it makes these things called ketones that your brain can use, right? Great state to be in. However, what happens is, is the body's smart. It goes, okay, if fat is my only fuel, I'm gonna just conserve this because I'm going to need to survive. And so what does it do? It blunts the insulin receptor to hold on to your fat. It wants to survive. Here's a great example. You live in the middle of the woods in Alaska. You have a wood pile that gets you through the winter and you're basing the size of your wood pile on past winters. And this winter's worse, it's very cold. So all of a sudden you realize I'm going through my wood, I'm not gonna last. So what are you going to do? 
you're going to burn less wood. So now instead of keeping your cabin at 70, you're going to be happy with 60, maybe 50, whatever it's going to take to not let that wood pile burn out because you'll die. This is what your body's saying with its fat stores. I want to hold on to my fat. It's my only fuel. Now, a friend comes over and see, you know, just happens to stop by and says, you know what, I have plenty of wood. Here, he dumps you more wood. Now what are you going to do? You're going to go, okay, you know what? I can burn more wood now. Of course you are. You're going to bring her back up to 70. That's what happens when you do a carb day, even once a week. The bodybuilders, Trevor, to your point, figured this out. So now once a week, you throw in the carbs. All you're doing is reminding the body it's not starving. That's it. The body goes, okay, I have plenty. So what, the, what does it do? It fires up the fat burning machine. Two days after you do that, your ketones soar again because now your body's burning fat again. It, it's magic. And, and by the way, some people do better with two carb days a week. Women, the week before their period, we put in five to seven days of higher healthy carbs. Hormonally, magic happens. All of a sudden now the intermittent fasting is working for them. Their low carb diets working for them. Why the week before their period does high carbs help them? Because you need insulin to make certain hormone conversions that women need a week before all these hormones are needing to be converted. For example, thyroid hormones uh, has to be converted into an active form and you need insulin to make that conversion. So their body craves carbohydrates. When you give it to them, magic happens. So the point is this, weekly, monthly, and seasonal variation in the diet is magic. We, so we, we call that refeeding and, and fitness and bodybuilding, but like when you say carbs, what specifically do you mean by carbs? Because I, a lot of people listen to this and they'll say he's talking about it's okay for me to go eat a slight, eat an entire pizza once a week, but that's not what you're saying, right? What kind of carbs? Yeah. Are you, are you so I, I'm about? talking about you know this is when you eat your your sweet potatoes, yams. If you're going to eat more fruit, eat more fruit. If you're going to eat some you know wild rice or ancient grains, eat them, right? That's the time to have your bowl of oatmeal. So yeah, I mean you want to gravitate to the healthier carbs. I think the next question, Steve, will be, how, well, how many, right? Uh, look, I mean, I think you'll find your magic, but for this to work, you typically have to get at least between 100, 200 grams of carbs a day, you know, for, for that to be a feast day. Uh, look, I'm going to say this too. Certain people with certain health conditions do better with high protein, and that works too. The body will take high protein and do some magic with it. But again, high protein all the time, it's bad. But periodically, your body can rev up a, a, a cycle called mTOR and a, a pathway called mTOR, which long-term is destructive, but short-term healing occurs. So high protein or high carbs can be magic in varying in your diet. This is what I found anecdotally with keto diets. And let me know your thoughts on this, Dr. Pompa, is that I think keto diets have their place. I think the two biggest mistakes people make is that number one, they don't implement a high carb refeed day at least once per week. I and I find the more active you are and the leaner you are, the more high carb refeed days you'll do. So if you're a lean guy who's you know active pretty much every day, you might have to do two or three high carb refeed And then another big mistake I see people make is they think keto means calorie free. So they're adding you know butter into their coffee, they're cooking sure. everything in coconut oil, they're you know loading avocado oil on everything. And they're not losing weight, even though they're following a keto diet. And the the laws of the conservation of energy still matters, right? So even if you're in ketosis, if you're consuming way too many calories, you're not going to lose weight. So I think that's a big mistake too. Is people, and this is partly because researchers, you know, and, and marketers, they say, oh, keto, fat burning, 
they kind of make you think that keto means calorie free, but calories still matter. Uh, you know, and here's a great way to think about calories, right? So we know this, that long-term caloric restriction doesn't work. Meaning, you know, okay, I'm gonna eat half my meal, half my meal, your metabolism goes down, down, down. Yeah, it works in the beginning and then it stops working and all of a sudden you're eating 500 calories going, it's, I'm losing muscle and I'm gaining fat. It doesn't work. However, what does work is this. So when you look at ancient cultures, no doubt they take in less calories than we do. But how do they do it? They don't do it by just eating less, meaning pushing food away. They do it by eating less often. So you're right, Trevor, the, the key calories do matter. But how do you, at the end of the day, take in less calories? Well, you do it by eating less often. But when you eat, you eat to full because it's good to tell your body, we're not in a starvation mode. If you keep restricting your calories each meal, your body eventually think, okay, we're not getting enough food and it'll slow the processes down of fat burning. But if you eat less often, and that's where intermittent fasting got popular, right? That's why when pe people do get results because they're eating in an eating smaller eating window and therefore they're benefiting from a fast, which we can talk about the benefits of fasting and eating in a window. At the end of the day, you always eat less. So eat less, but eat less by eating less often is the message because calories do matter. We know that if you eat less, you live longer, right? We know this, but eat less the way ancient people eat less. Just, I, I just, I, I just this morning did a rant on exactly what you just said. And like every mod on our forum, like disagree with me because I was telling people that eating in a 500 calorie deficit a day, losing a pound a week, if you're 200 pounds after 200 weeks, you should weigh zero according to their theory, but that's not the way it works, but they don't want to listen to that because their yeah. idea, every time a fat person comes on the forum trying to lose weight, that's what they tell them. They like eat in a deficit every day for the long term, because that's gonna work. And I tell them that Weight Watchers, that's exactly what Weight Watchers is, and 95% of people fail on Weight Watchers. So Absolutely. it doesn't work. I, and and it, so this is, like, this is like the argument I have <laughs> with people every day that you're saying. So it's kind of funny having you on and actually reinforcing what I'm saying. Go ahead, Trevor. It, it does work, but it works temporarily. Exactly. That's, that's what I said this morning. I said it will only work temporarily. That's why you see it. And, and, and by the way, that's why people are deceived because, they, you know, they, they know I lost 10 pounds doing this. So I know it works, but it doesn't work long term. And, and that is the message that people have trouble with. Look, when we look at studies on living longer, we know that a 25 to 30 percent caloric restriction. I mean, it's oh, my gosh. I mean, in all these animal studies, it worked unbelievable. So we must just be gluttonous and we're eating too much. Well, the Biosphere 2 project where they put seven people, you know, in a, a perfect like ecosystem and they called it the Biosphere. They restricted their calories 30% for two years. Surely these people are going to come out healthier, better, amazing, right? It failed. They came out more unhealthy. They were catabolic, right? They were catabolic with fat on their belly. I mean, honestly, and that's exactly what happens. So what happened was, is their body went into this catabolic state. Now, some of the genes for longevity were turned on, but they became more, uh, they became, had more problems with their immune system. They became um, uh, infectious diseases became more of an issue, you know, so it didn't work. Now, uh, one of the gentlemen who was in the Biosphere 2 project, one of his students uh, actually said, well, wait a minute, what if we did it? short term instead of two years 
what if we did shorter bursts of low calorie, emulating ancient cultures? This guy's name is Walter Longo, who I've been uh, really privileged to work with their group because they just got $44 million uh, to do more of these studies. So he showed that five days a month in caloric restriction works. So short term, to Trevor's point, actually not only works, it's actually proven to work. So it's not our opinion. So what happens when they restricted calories between 500 to 1,000 a day for five days and then did regular caloric intake and then the next month, another five days, and then the next month, another five days. Their first study they did was on rats, type one diabetic rats. Their pancreatic beta cells actually regenerated. That's how amazing it is by doing these short periods of caloric restriction. Now, why did that happen? In 2016, a gentleman won the Nobel uh, Prize by a word called autophagy, meaning that what happens in a fasting state, even a caloric-restricted state, which is still a partial fasting state, your body eats the bad cells, the cells that are living too long, the cells that are causing inflammation and mischief, the cells that aren't functioning correctly. The body's so smart that it will use those cells for extra energy that it needs to heal and to function. Now, here's the best part. What happens around day three, day four, day five of one of these types of fasts or caloric restricted uh, times is the body upregulates stem cells to replace those cells that it used for energy. So now the stem cells actually do healing in the body. And that's why the beta cells in the rats regenerate. They're doing this exact study now in humans. And I can tell you clinically, we find that it works magic. Autoimmune, all these different conditions that we didn't have an answer for these times of fasting states. Again, feast famine, we're emulating ancient cultures. So five days a month, that's a different story than long-term caloric restriction. So I'll, I'll let Trevor jump in, but you know, our, our four members are kind of blessed because I'm around and I've done these prolonged fasts. I actually logged daily my prolonged fast. I did a 19-day prolonged oh. fast. I did a 10-day prolonged fast. I've done a 15-day prolonged fast. So I fast you know, pretty regularly. And one of the things that I found during my fast is um, during my fast, my blood pressure went sky high. My adrenaline went sky high. I felt my, my body was under tremendous stress. Then when I came off, I checked my, my numbers. Also during the fast, my white blood cells cratered. And then when I came off, everything went back to normal. And not only that, but my cholesterol dropped, my blood pressure dropped, everything, my heart rate dropped and everything. So it seems like during your fast, your numbers get go crazy. Your body's in a tremendous stressed out state and you're kind of training right. your body to become more healthy. And I, I find it like every time I get sick, all I do is just fast and my sickness goes away while other people are taking antibiotics. So I, I found it to be a huge weapon and a lot of bodybuilders are scared to fast because they're scared to lose their muscle. And could you kind of touch on that a little bit? Because that's the argument I hear. Everyone's afraid of losing their muscle. Oh my God, I'm going to lose a muscle. Yeah, and let's talk about that myth, right? And I, I just uh, a month ago finished a five-day water fast. I probably do three a year on average. Uh, okay, so what happens in a fasting state? The body, you're right, you're creating stress. And the body adapts uh, hormonally. You know, and you said your white blood cells tank. You know, that was one of the criticisms years ago about fasting. Oh, it lowers your immune system because we see this white blood cell tank you know happen well we know scientifically what's happening because of a lot of longo's work what happens is through this autophagy process the body eats up all these 
white blood cells that are living too long. We call it cell senescence. Not only do they live too long, but they're the ones driving chronic inflammation. And all of us, they just live too long and they cause mischief and they cause a hyperimmunity. So many of us have low-grade autoimmune where the body is creating these overreactions. And it's these older cells. Well, during a fast, your body gets rid of those. That's why fasting is magic for chronic inflammation, autoimmune, so because it gets rid of these overactive old white blood cells. But here's the best part. What happens is, is the stem cells, you said your cells came right back up. Your stem cells create new white blood cells, more naive. They're not driving inflammation. They're young and healthy and not overreacting. So what happens then is we downregulate the autoimmune, the food allergies, the seasonal allergies. We get this downregulation of the bad immune system and an upregulation of a healthy immune system. So, you know, that's what happens in a fasting state. Let's talk about the muscle myth, right? So let me tell you, you know, my wife, I, at my seminars, I always show a picture of her and she's 51 and she's muscular. And she'll tell you the difference, how she gained that muscle was nothing workout wise. She didn't change anything. Else. It was when she started fasting more frequently. Now, how is that possible? Well, your muscle is like the white blood cells. You end up having a lot of old cells in your muscle that doesn't recover. As we know, the key is not what you do in the gym, it's the recovery, right? So these older cells, they're not recovering. Therefore, your workouts are not working the way they should because you're not recovering the same. After a fast, your body uses those old muscle cells for the energy that it needs. It needs those amino acids. It takes them from those old cells. What does it do? It raises up your stem cells and it starts replacing those muscle cells with newer cells, just like your immune system. Now, a month later, what happens is you created new cells and now you're recovering and you actually gain muscle. It, it's classic. I mean, we are meant in our DNA to fast. Fasting will gain muscle a month later because you have new muscle cells that recover faster. Simple as that. Your immune system a month later, better because you gain new immune cells via this autophagy stem cell reaction. Do not be afraid to fast. Listen, your, your body goes into about a 24-hour period where it'll use a little bit of muscle. It immediately crosses out of that, and now it's using all of your bad cells, and it's using all of your fat, and fat adapts within at least two or three days. But maybe one day where you'll eat some of the muscle, and what was studies found? It's eating the bad muscle anyway. So the bottom line is that's a myth, it's not true. Your body's meant to fast. Let me just say this, and I'll let Trevor jump in. I think what the, the thing a lot of people get confused about, because if you look at my log, my muscles did flatten out over the 19 days. Two days after I came off my fast, they filled right back up again Absolutely. with the glycogen. So people are confusing water retention and glycogen in the muscles with muscle being lost. And that's, I think, where the confusion comes from. But it's not losing actual muscle tissue. So that's, I think, where the confusion comes from. From Well, and again, if you do lose muscle tissue, it's cells that you needed to get rid of. Exactly. They're hindering your recovery. And then your stem cells raise up. And that's why we do five-day fast, by the way, because you get the maximum stem cell rise around five days and growth hormone rise, by the way. It uses growth hormone to keep your muscle. That's part of the adaptation. Your body wants to survive. Remember, I said that earlier. Well, it needs muscle to run from a lion. So it doesn't want to use its muscle. It wants to use all of its bad tissue. So it raises up growth hormone, makes you more sensitive to testosterone to keep its muscle for that very reason. 
So therefore, it's smart enough to know, don't take the bad flesh, only, I mean, the good flesh, only eat the bad. So you're right on, the visual flattening you see is glycogen loss, simple, and you're 100% right. But if you do have any tissue loss, it's a good thing, and a month later, you'll gain good tissue. It's a magic, I'm telling you, it really is. I kind of want to ask you one more thing about fasting, and I'll let Trevor jump in, I'm sorry. Um, when I did my 19 day, I did take electrolytes during my fast. Um, and I did work out during my fast. I know if you're trying to heal from an injury, you, you probably don't want to work out the way I did because I worked out every day. But like electrolytes, um, I really did feel like I still had the benefits even with the electrolytes. What's your what's your position on that? Yeah, no, I, have- I think um, yeah. electrolytes, the first three days of a fast, you dump a lot of fluid and glycogen, right? And you lose electrolytes. So taking even some sea salt, you know, two to four teaspoons a day will maintain your electrolytes or just take some electrolytes. It will help you. Uh, once you're a seasoned faster, you know, you realize, you know, you know I, I really, you know, don't really need to take electrolytes. I don't have to anymore. But you, when you go an extended fast like you did, it's recommended um, just because it does make it a little easier, you know. And again, I, you know, I, I've, you know, I recommend extended fasting, especially if you have more body tissue, right? Someone that's smaller, multiple shorter fasts work better for them, but there is a benefit to longer fasts. And I even talk, I do a class on how to know when to even break a fast. Uh, I had a gentleman at one of my seminars. Uh, he started, he was obese. He was over 400 pounds. Um, he was on 120 days of just water. Now he started, he was on 14 medications. Um, he basically was told you're going to die. Uh, he was a mess. Every one of his blood markers were basically showing death. Um, at that point, he was off all of his medication and he was, his doctor was supervising the fast, obviously, um, but 120 days of just water. And he was off. Oh, and by the way, his blood markers were perfect. His nutrition markers that they measured in the beginning, absolutely spot on. So what was happening? Where was his body getting nutrition from his flesh, right? His body was eating through autophagy, all of the bad tissue. And it was, you know, providing perfectly the nutrition he needed, but uh, it healed him. The longest fast recorded in modern day is, um, it was, it's a Scotsman. He uh, fasted 389 days, something like that. I, I may have it slightly off, maybe it's 84, but, um, and he lost hundreds of pounds, you know, and uh, anyways, big success story there as well. The guy who fasted 120 days, what was his first meal? Yeah, you know, I don't know, but I did teach him how to break the fast correctly. He wasn't my... Uh, client or patient but yeah he he did there's a proper way to break a fast you don't just go okay i'm going to eat the steak your hcl your hydrochloric acid your stomach's very low your microbiome has to readjust so you go very slow with some avocado you know just some very light foods cooked vegetables are easier to digest than raw you know some blended things are actually a nice way to break a fast just make sure you hire a maid for uh, the day you break your fast, because I needed one after that, because everything just went right through me that first day. So. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess you know, doing a 120 day fast and be like, okay, I'm gonna go to Pizza Hut. I'm gonna reward myself. You get sick. So, yeah. so. And you don't want to do that because you'll break your body. Uh, you know, you, your body's ripe with all these new stem cells, and it's healing. If you shock the body like that, you stop that healing, and, and that's not good. So I always tell people, look, don't waste uh, the fast. Don't waste the fast. You know, please, 
You know? So how, how often should we do like those five day prolonged fasts as athletes? Like, is it like a couple times a year? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think the average person, even fasting once a year, the Huns of people, long, one of the longest living, healthy tribes on the planet, uh, they had fasting spring every spring. Now they were forced to fast. And at one point they really weren't forced to fast, but it became a cultural uh, thing that, um, was fasting and they really attribute their long life and health to the fast. So even one a year is life changing. However, for more challenged conditions, we fast people sometimes once a month. And a lot of times we do the partial fast. And Dr. Walter Longo developed the fasting mimicking diet, the prolonged fast. I think you just said that word, which it's here's box one. It's like five to 800 calories, you know, for the day, here's your food. Here's day two, day three, day four, day five. It's a five day fast in a box. And it's, again, it's, you know, they call it the fasting mimicking diet, which it's, it's a partial fast in the sense of you have to get protein below 20 grams. Otherwise you break out of this autophagy and you have to get calories under a thousand. Otherwise you'll break out of the autophagy state. So oftentimes we'll start with one of these types of fast. And then later we can move to water fasting uh, if we feel that's necessary. But maybe even once a quarter doing a fast. I fast probably, like I said, three, four times a year, maybe two water fasts, two uh, partial fasts. Um, I did one of those fasting mimicking diets um, with the box food. I did that, not the last fast, I did pure water, but the one before that. So I got, I got two more questions for you, Dr. Pompa. We're close to our hour here. So if someone wants to, let's say, do a five-day fast once per year, would there be a specific time you'd recommend? I know traditional Chinese recommend Chinese medicine recommends detox in the spring. So is that something you would align with? Maybe do your five-day fast in the yeah, spring? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think that is the, if I had to pick one time, that would be the ultimate time, uh, you know, based on ancient cultures. I mean, that's when the fast typically occurred. You know, I think you'll benefit any time. Um, <clears throat> I, I like to fast January or February just because, I don't know. You know, it's like one of those things you start your year off with, you know, but I typically do a spring fast as well. Okay. And then my second question is because a lot of people listening to this podcast are interested in weight loss, right? They've tried the eat less, exercise more. That doesn't work. My theory, and this is something I've just thought about myself, is that if you look at cultures who are lean, you know, you have like the French culture, they eat less, exercise less right? They don't really exercise very much, especially in Europe. If you go, if you go to Europe, no one's jogging. Like you'll yeah. never people jog, right? People walk everywhere, but they don't really eat that much. You know, if you ever go for dinner in Europe, like it's not a massive portion. So that's eat less, exercise less. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've eat more, exercise more. And that would be, you know, like Michael Phelps, your favorite athlete, you see, you know, eats 10,000 calories per day, but is also exercising, you know, 10 hours per day. So would you recommend, because we don't eat less, exercise more, it doesn't work. Would you recommend someone maybe cycling between those? Like on the days you exercise, eat more, and then the days you don't exercise, eat less? Would that kind of be the best way to go about it? Because even without trying to do that, that happens, right? If I exercise this morning, I invariably um, like do a hard exercise, right? A more intense exercise. I invariably get hungrier earlier. Right. I mean, I intermittent fast. So, you know, I haven't eaten today yet. I probably won't eat until maybe three o'clock. Um, I didn't exercise today, but let's say I did. Uh, you know, no doubt my afternoon meal will be bigger. I'll be more hungry. And I listen to my body. Right. And days I don't work out, I, I will eat one meal a day oftentimes. I just, I'm just simply not hungry. So I eat less. 
but I, I definitely do it by eating less often and listening to my body. You know, when you look at the, uh, you know, Europe culture, which, you know, I spent, you know, some time there, you know, they, their breakfast is hardly a breakfast at all, right? That's the continental breakfast, right? Americans, we go there and like, like, really? This is breakfast? Are you kidding? It's, it's a cup of coffee and <clears throat> if anything, a piece of cheese or a Danish. I mean, it's like nothing, right? So, and then they typically don't even eat until dinner. And then their dinner is, that's the meal, right? It typically lasts a few hours. It's very social, right? I mean, that's the Italian way. That's my culture. Uh, you know, we went uh, with a good friend of mine last year. We went to Italy with him. We, he, was, he drank espresso in the morning. We were out the door. You know, he didn't even know about intermittent fasting. You know, didn't, had never heard the word, but this is what he did. But then we ate this big dinner that lasted three hours, right? By the way, I, the tribe that I visited in Africa was the same thing. The men went out hunting all day. The women were gathering. They were gone until the afternoon. They didn't eat anything. The whole time they were tracking animals, they ate nothing because it slows them down. And then they came back and it was a three, four hour feast, you know, with the tribe. Um, you know, and, and that's the way really our bodies are set up to do it. So at the end of the day, we do eat less. Um, you know, you get your body, um, you know, even when I do eat, I eat to full. But when I haven't eaten all day because I've been fasting, you fill up faster. So you do, you eat less. And that's why the French and the Italians eat less is because they really just, they can't eat a lot, right? I mean, it's, they're eating to full. Trust me, they are. Otherwise it wouldn't work. Um, but so eat less often and it'll allow you to eat less. So, I mean, I try to stress to people, they don't have to eat like eight meals a day to build muscle, but they don't seem to want to like accept that for some reason. I'm not really sure why. I, I'm not sure what started the whole, you got to eat every two hours to like build muscle or, or lose weight. I, this is the funny one. The funniest one is you have to eat every two hours or your metabolism will slow down. You'll gain weight. I love that one, by the way. Yeah. Because in America, we eat too less in America, you know? Like you said, we go to IHOP or Denny's, we eat too less. Well, you know, let, let, let's talk about the muscle gain thing because a lot of bodybuilders now are learning to eat in a smaller window. But let's face it, though. If you want to put on an abnormal amount of muscle, you have to do some abnormal things. Well, you know, there's, I, I mentioned earlier, we have the autophagy pathway where your body will eat bad cells, but there's an opposing pathway called mTOR. mTOR gets a bad rap because... Um, mTOR, if you're in this pathway too long, you age prematurely, which is true. But short bursts of mTOR actually can be very healing. But bodybuilders want to be in this mTOR pathway all the time. Why? Because it is not a catabolic pathway. It's an anabolic pathway. Your body builds tissue, creates new cells. So this is how they create new muscle, right? And so what, what are the things that stimulate this mTOR pathway? High calories which is not good long-term, we talked about that. High protein, not good long-term, and high carbohydrates. Okay, so all of that stimulates mTOR, which will put on muscle. So if you wanna put on muscle, that's where eating two, every two hours, eating, 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 because it stimulates this mTOR pathway and you can put on muscle. Is it healthy? No. Does it work? Every bodybuilder would tell you it does. Uh, and again, there's a lot of myths around that. You're gonna lower your metabolism. That, that's not true. But it does higher calories, higher protein, higher carbs can all help to put on muscle because it stimulates mTOR. Now, what if we wanted to do it more healthy? What if we did it doing it in a more structured way in a smaller eating window? Ah, you know, then you get this hormone rise. You don't have to eat as many calories, so therefore it's healthier. You don't have to throw a bunch of protein down. 
However, I'll say this, bodybuilders, let's say they're eating in a six to eight hour window. They still have to eat more calories in that window and they're going to put on more muscle. So you, if you're interested in putting on an abnormal amount of muscle, you're going to have to do things that aren't as healthy. I mean, there is, you understand, Steve, there's, there's this dichotomy of if you want to live long, you know, you're not going to have to eat all these calories. I mean, you shouldn't eat all these calories, but if you want to put muscle on, do it, but please do it in a window. Yeah, I, I love what you said, and, and I kind of realized this when I was 20 is because I used to compete in bodybuilding shows. I actually have my pro card in bodybuilding, and I, I was always interested in research, right? So I, I knew mTOR is important for muscle building. So I'd go on PubMed and search mTOR and I'd find all of these studies about muscle building and then all of these studies about premature aging. So I was like, well, this sucks. I'm going to look great, but I'm going to die early. And there's kind, of like, there's kind of like a spectrum, right? What's really good for bodybuilding generally is bad for your health. Tons of food, tons of drugs, tons of excessive weight training. Let's face it. Like if you really want to be a good bodybuilder, you're going to die early. And that's the average age. 63, the average uh, bodybuilders, uh, the average, the, that's what they live to. I realized that that's, what is that, 15 years uh, early death. Yeah, exactly, right? And then there's the other spectrum. The, what's good for bodybuilding is, you know, long-term fasting, low-caloric diets, lots of cardio, uh, things like that, which is, is kind of the opposite spectrum, right? So you kind of want to be like somewhere in the middle, and, and that's going to give you the best of both things, right? You're going to feel good. You're going to yeah. not die and you're still going to have a nice physique. Trevor, you said it best. Look, you have both sides of the spectrum, right? You have your vegans and, you know, some of these people over here and they fast too much. They're too low of calories, too much autophagy. It's no good. You can spot the people a mile away. They look catabolic, right? They're, they're over here too much. And then you have your bodybuilders over here that, you know, this is no good either. So again, what are we doing? It's feast and famine. The magic is both. Both, I would argue, this is too bad. Too much of this is bad. Too much of this is bad. You want both feast and famine, and and I talk about that in my book because my feast famine cycles is the magic. And exactly, it's like a balance. It's just like anything in life. You got to be balanced. It's just like the seasons change. You know, every three months, the seasons change. The same thing. It's all about balance. Yeah, on each side. But like, if you're a bodybuilder and you're like 300 pounds and you're huge, fast like for five days give your body a little boost and then go back to what you're doing. That Absolutely. Be- That's what I'm trying Common to say. Do if it you guys have done that, they'd probably still be alive. Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe you could still get, even hold on to more muscle that would be considered normal. You can do it healthy. If you follow these principles, feast and famine, cycle it, diet variation, you know, do it all, but you have to, you still need this autophagy pathway. You do. So we're out of time doctor, but we really appreciate you coming on. I really want to get your book for sure. Um, where can I get your book? Is it on Amazon? Yeah, you know what? Um, we're, it's released uh, next week at my seminar. So um, it's we're doing kind of a soft launch because I wanted to release it my seminar. And then the hardcover book will be out a month after that. I think I'm speaking of Paleo FX. I think I'm launching that there. But beyond fasting, look for it. It will be on Amazon probably in about a month. So... And then what about your website or all your other books? Yeah, my website's DR, like Dr. DR, and then my last name, P-O-M-P-A. So drpompa.com. You can go to my podcast, Cellular Healing TV. Um, I do, I talk about all these things even on my Facebook. You can access it there as well. So if, if I put your, your website in the show notes, would that have landing pages to your Facebook and everything yes. else? Yeah, okay. so drpompa.com, it'll bring you to all those things. 
for all of our listeners, I'll have Dr. Pompa's website in the show notes. So you can just check that out and click it. Dr. Pompa, I really appreciate you coming on. This is a really, really interesting episode. Lots of really good quantitative information. For your host, Trevor Fritzen, my co-host, Steve Smee, this has been another episode of Evolutionary Radio. Live your life, look good doing it. Thanks for listening.